Healing can happen when people share their stories. Welcome to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. Discover true stories from those who were called to sit in the witness chair. Experience their journey through their legal process and beyond. This podcast brings to light the trauma and stress caused by testifying under oath and offers resources by talking with witnesses, key litigators, and mental wellness professionals to assist with different approaches one can utilize to prepare to take the stand and how to heal after the encounter. And now, here's your host, Juliet Huck. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Trauma Trial Transformation from a beautiful summer day in Los Angeles. My guest today has taken a wrongful conviction and turned it into an amazing story of becoming an essential advocate, helping to change the criminal justice system. He's been on a mission to take back control of his life when at 16 years old, he was wrongly accused of rape and murder and served 16 years in prison. He's been exonerated and the person who actually committed the crime now resides in jail. And since then, he has an MA degree in criminal justice, went on to earn his law degree 30 years later after his life got taken away from him. He speaks to lawyers, judges, DAs. He does continuing education, tips for lawyers from an exonerated man. He's done a TED Talk called True Injustice of Wrongful Conviction. He's been on the forefront of changing the laws to videotape interrogations and better identification procedures, which I can't wait to talk to him about. He's on the board of Global Restorative Justice, worked on helping pass the first state-sponsored bill on prosecutorial conduct that was signed by Governor Como. He's authored over 100 articles and is also a keynote speaker for international conferences on wrongful confessions and interrogations. I would like to welcome Jeff Desick. Jeff, thank you so much for being here today. What a story. What a story. I'm so honored that you've taken the time to come and talk to me. Thank you for having me on. So, you know, I I really want to start kind of at the beginning of your story. You know, I I read that early, early on, you know, that you actually attended a funeral and you were so distraught and cried so openly at a service that the police somehow thought you had suspicious behavior and took you into custody. Was that just unbelievably shocking to you yeah definitely it's it's not anything i expected for sure and what did you think at the time well i mean i didn't i didn't actually realize that i was arrested until like halfway through the processing you know because i i had been told you know i had been told by this officer was pretending to be my friend that you know just tell the cops what they wanted to hear you know, well, first of all, there was like a six-week run-up to it. It wasn't just I was at, you know, a funeral and then they suddenly arrested me. All right, there was mm-hmm. there was a six-week run-up to, run-up to the day that I was arrested. Firstly, the police interviewed a lot of students from the high school. Some of them told the police they might want to talk to me, because I was quiet. I was to myself, so I didn't quite fit in. I guess their thought was people who don't fit in commit heinous crimes. Right. So that put me. So that put me on their radar. Uh, I was also a sensitive teenager, and this was my first real brush with death, and I did have an emotional reaction. And the cops mm-hmm. didn't think that that was some sort of outward sign that I was sorry for what I did. Mm. And thirdly, they got a psychological profile from the NYPD, which claimed to have the psychological characteristics of the actual perpetrator. 
And I had the misfortune of matching that. So that's what put me on the police radar. Mm. So for about six weeks, the police played this cat and mouse game with me, in which half the time they would speak to me as if, you know, speak to me like a suspect. And then it would push too hard and I'd become afraid and want to get away from them. Then Jeff as this junior detective helper theme was developed. They would switch it up and pretend they need my help to solve the crime. Before I was a teenager, I dreamed about being a cop when I grew up. So that mm. was how that, along with my age, which was 16, they were able to pull the wool over my eyes. I would oh, say wow. things like, kids won't talk freely around us, but they will around you. Let us know mm. if you hear anything. Stop in from time to time. They would ask me opinion questions and congratulate me that my opinion was correct. Mm. They played good cop, bad cop, my, my, you know, on me. And, and I, my father was never involved in my life. And I began to look up to the officer who was pretending to be my friend as a father figure. Mm. So eventually they said, look, we want you to take and pass this polygraph test. And we got some new information. We want to share that with you. But you have to pass the polygraph first. So the next day, instead of reporting to the high school, I went to the police station for the test. My mother and grandmother thought I was in school, so they did not call around looking for me. So they drove me from Peekskill, which is Peekskill, New York, which is in Westchester County. They drove me 40 minutes away by car across county lines to Putnam County. Um, It was a school day, so my mother and grandmother thought I was in school, so they had no idea that anything was wrong. Um, There's three cops that came with me from Peekskill. Of course, they put me in the car by myself by the so-called good cop. The polygrapher was a Putnam County Sheriff's investigator, and he was dressed like a civilian. He never identified himself as law enforcement. I, I didn't have an attorney present. They didn't give any, me anything to eat mm. the entire time I was there. He gave me a four-page brochure, which explained how the polygraph worked, but it had a lot of big words in it that I didn't understand. But then I figured, well, I'm here to help the cops, so what does it matter? Let's just get on with it. Wow. So you actually thought you were helping. Right, exactly. From there, he put me in a small room and he gave me countless cups of coffee to get me nervous. Mm. And then he attached me to the polygraph machine and then he launched into his third degree tactics. So he invaded my personal space. He raised his voice at me. He kept asking me the same questions over and over again. And, you know, my fear increased in proportion to the time. And he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours. And towards the end, he said, look, what do you mean you didn't you didn't do it? You just told me through the test results that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it. And that really shot my fear through the roof. And at that point, the cop was pretending to be my friend. He came in the room and told me that the other officers were going to harm me. He had been holding them off, but he couldn't do so any longer. That I had to help myself. Then he said, look, just tell them what they want to hear. You go home afterwards. You're not going to be arrested. So being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, I wasn't thinking about the long term. I was just concerned with my safety in the moment. I was overwhelmed emotionally, psychologically. And, mm-hmm. you know, he had pulled, you know, that he had um, put this, um, you know, he, he had threw me this false life preserver. Mm-hmm. So I took, I took the out which he offered and I made up a story based on the information which he had uh, given me in the course of the interrogation. By the time everything was said and done, you know, I, I had collapsed on the floor in a fetal position. I was crying uncontrollably. And obviously, I was I was arrested. I was charged with the murder and rape. But I didn't realize that I had been arrested. 
I mean, on the way back, they put me in handcuffs. And I said, well, what are you putting me in handcuffs for? You was told I wasn't going to be arrested. And so the lieutenant overseeing everything just said, safety. Oh, wow. So we went back to the Peekskill police headquarters. And, the, and, you know, they had pizza there. And I was eating pizza. And the cops disappeared. The good cop and the lieutenant disappeared. It was just the bad cop that was there. But I was eating pizza. And periodically I was interrupted by a uniformed police officer who was carrying out different facets of the processing. Hmm. And finally, I remember when he put finger, you know, put the ink on the fingers to do the fingerprints. And I remember getting angry about that. And I looked at the bad cop and I said, you know, you know, what's he doing? You know, I'm, 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 I'm trying to eat pizza over here. I've got ink all over my fingers. Oh, and, wow. and he said, well, he has a right to do that. I'm like, what do you mean he has a right to do that? You know, I was told I wasn't going to be arrested. And, and he, and he, and he said, oh, you, oh, well, you are being charged with the crime. It was only wow. at that moment that I realized I had been arrested. Wow. So what was going on inside of you? Not just, I mean, what, were you just panicking? Well, I remember feeling angry. I remember feeling betrayed. I remember being shocked. I remember just an out-of-control type feeling, and I remember wondering what was going to happen next. Yeah. You know, that, that, that word, uh, you know, coercion, you talk to me about that word. It's like, you know, technique that is taught to psychologically coerce a suspect. Can you tell me why that even exists? Like, why? How is that even possible? Yeah, because when you, because when you're in the moment, first of all, as a person being questioned, you know, you're not, you're not thinking about the long term. You're just concerned with your safety in the moment. You want things to stop. You wanna, you wanna get out of there. You know, and then, and it, you know, there was a threat and it is the false promise also. And so you're feeling obviously unsafe, right? There's the trauma that's going to start to occur. Yeah, yeah. I felt in fear in my life because the fact that I didn't know where I was and that nobody else knew either loomed very large in front of, you know, large in my mind. So not innocent until proven guilty. They obviously thought you were guilty and kept pushing you to do that. But, so, but why didn't they give you a lawyer? Well, I didn't. I didn't ask for one at that point. But then again, you know, the way they were carrying on certainly didn't lead me to believe that they would give me a lawyer. I mean, the thought, the thought that I could ask them for a lawyer never really entered my mind. I mean, they did read me my rights plenty of times. I mean, it was early in the morning that day, but prior to that, they had read me my rights plenty of times, but I was 16 years old. I didn't, right. I didn't understand what the rights were. And every time they got to the part where they would say, read anything you say, can it will be used against you in a court of law. And in my mind went to what I saw on TV in different civil court contexts. And I would think to myself, well, court, what are you, what are you talking about? We're not, we're not going to court. And, right. and that was, and on enhancing all of that was the fact they were keeping me off balance by pretending that they needed my help to solve the crime. Yeah. Which sounds like such a crime in itself. Right. I mean, yes. that's the part I don't quite understand, but I mean, you're, you know, you're you're 16 years old. What, what would you say to a young person today that just doesn't? I mean, I I, I go back to, you know, um, not exactly the same situation that you were in, but I go back to the George Floyd murder and when those kids picked up their cell phone, they didn't have any clue to what that meant, right? They don't. A 16 year old, 18 year old doesn't really understand the law. What what would you say to somebody like that? That you know, 
just has no clue. Yeah, it, it, yeah, exactly. You don't really don't have a, a clue. I mean, most people don't realize that, you know, most people, the innocence of, of suspects works against them, you know, mm-hmm. and they really think that, you know, they can waive their rights and speak to the police and, you know, what could possibly happen. I mean, I'm innocent and I didn't, don't know anything, but actually quite quite a bit can happen. It's really important to insist on a lawyer and not let them talk you out of that. And once they're provided with the lawyer, the, the playing field will be even. And then any conversation needs to, and the lawyer can explain to you, you know, what, what your rights actually mean, because most of us don't know what they mean. Right. And then, it, then any conversation can then happen at that point. Right. So actually, that would be the best advice is ask for a lawyer. You know, I know there was, there's always that TV thing, you get one phone call, but it's really needing to get somebody. But can, so can somebody at that age, like not talk at all without, I mean, and, and insist a lawyer? Yeah, sure. You could refuse to just answer questions, but they're not going to stop questioning you. Right. But if you ask for a lawyer, on the other hand, they by law, they have to stop questioning you. Okay, that's good to know. That's the difference. Yeah. Well, that's that's a big difference. You know, if you ask for the lawyer, that's you have to ask. Yeah, really. Yeah, no, it, it, it really is. Yeah. Wow, that's that's important. So, so you're talk to me about the trial process. So, you were arrested. Were you in jail at the time? Did you post bail or? Yeah, I was. I was in jail. I was in jail for about thirty five days, approximately, and then you know I got I got bailed out, and then. Uh, DNA test results came in from the FBI lab, which showed that seminal fluid found in the victim didn't match me. Mm-hmm. But instead of acknowledging they made a mistake, they continued to prosecute full speed ahead. Wow. You know, the prosecutor got the medical examiner to commit fraud. Mm. You know, he six months after doing the autopsy, once the DNA didn't match me, then he suddenly claimed that he remembered that he forgot to document medical evidence, which he claimed showed that the victim had been promiscuous, which was a lie, but that opened the door for the prosecutor to argue that that was how the DNA didn't match me, and yet I was guilty that she was sleeping around and that she must have slept with someone before I murdered and raped her. Mm. In fact, he took it a step further and mentioned another youth by name that he claimed had slept with the victim. Wow. But he never had a DNA test performed to prove that. He never called him as a witness. He just made the unsupported argument to the jury. And he got away with that because the victim's family was not coming to court, so they had no idea what was being said about her in the court. And my, more importantly, my public defender uh, uh, allowed him to get away with it. He essentially didn't defend me. Yeah, I mean, he didn't interview or call as a witness my alibi. I was actually playing with football and the crime happened. Uh, he never, he rarely met with me when he would meet with me. I tried to explain to him that I was innocent and what happened in the interrogation room. He, he was always shutting me up. One mm. time he told me he, he didn't care if I was guilty or innocent. This is your public uh, defender? This is a public defender. He never mm. explained to the jury the significance of the DNA not matching me. He never used that to argue that that proved that the confession was coerced and false. He literally asked no questions to the medical examiner. And in terms of addressing the confession, sometimes he told the jury, sometimes he argued to the jury that confession never happened. Other times he, he, he told them that it did happen, but it was coerced. And still other times he told them it was false. 
So by taking this approach of throwing mud against the wall, hoping something stuck, he had to have been standing there with no credibility at all. You know, my interrogation was not videotaped. It was not audio taped. It was no signed confession. It was just the cop's word for it. And they, as a result, when they came to court, they left the threat and false promise out of their story. I wanted to testify so that I could put the threat and coercion on the record and, you know, have that be considered, but he wouldn't let me testify. I was going to ask you about that. So you didn't, he wouldn't let you testify at all. And you just had to sit there and take it. Yeah. And, and, you know, when we were making that decision or talking about it, I mean, he, he refused to allow my mother or any other adult to be involved in the conversation. And it was just him and I, but, you know, I'm, I was 17 at that point And, you know, I was still in over my head. I didn't understand. Sure. But there were some irregularities about my trial. I mean, the, despite the general rule that the polygraph test results are not admissible because it's not scientific and mm-hmm. the, reason, the test results definitely would be prejudicial. The judge nonetheless allowed the polygraphist to uh, repeatedly tell the jury that I failed. Uh, the victim's bra and her other clothes had been entered as evidence by the prosecution. And when the uh, that it, the jury asked to see the bra, and that was important because um, one of the statements they coerced that at me, I said that um, I, I said that you know I ripped her bra off, and the jury asked to see the bra. The, the way that you know some bras are made, you can't rip it off the body. Right. And when they asked to see it, that's when the judge said, "Well, the clothes, including the bra, have been left in the courthouse over the weekend." And the janitors thought it was trash, and so it was been thrown out, and it's not available anymore. Mm. Wow. And lastly, on the third day of the jury deliberations, they sent out a note asking if they couldn't reach uh, a verdict, would they be kept sequestered over the Christmas holiday? And the judge said yes. And, uh, you know, I, they this one juror who thought I was innocent, you know, he, he switched his vote based on that. Based and so that. I was found guilty. Wow. And I was given a 15 to life sentence because I had been charged as an adult, tried as an adult, and sentenced as an adult. And I was therefore given an adult sentence of 15 to life, and I was sent to a men's maximum security prison. Wow, at 17. So, you know, can I talk to you a little bit about the interrogation process? I mean, you know, I think it's hard for a lot of people to, to understand how you would confess to something, but, you know, we're not in that situation. So that's one thing I want to put out there with my listeners is like, you don't, you can't relate to something unless you are in those shoes. And so when they get you to say things, how does that happen? They just beat you down so bad, but I mean, to get you to admit ripping a bra and... Well, I mean, it's not a normal conversation like we're having. It's not some benign conversation or even something friendly. It's a very hostile thing. It's a lot of pressure and the interrogation techniques, I mean, are designed to psychologically coerce people and, Mm, you know, threats and false promises, which are illegal. But, you know, those play a factor and person being questioned just wants to get out of there. They just want things to stop and, you know, a promise of being able to you know, leave afterwards and not be arrested. I mean, that those are common themes. Uh, I want to share with your listeners that coerced false confessions have uh, caused wrongful convictions in 29% of the DNA proven wrongful convictions. Mm. And so it's more common than what people think. Yeah. And while adults have given coerced confessions before, 
particularly vulnerable populations are, are youth and people with mental health issues, of which I was a youth. Right, right. So, so why, why is there prosecutor's immunity? Well, why, why is that? So that's a court-made rule, and uh, the theory of it is that they want prosecutors to concentrate on prosecuting cases, not, not defending lawsuits or looking over their back, and they argue that there would be a chilling effect but you know, to me, I, I, I don't, I don't think that's a good argument. I mean, police officers, for example, don't have immunity, and they're not hindered from investigating or making arrests. And forensic scientists don't have immunity. You know, they're not hindered from their job. You know, I don't, I don't see why we should have a class of people that are essentially above uh, the law. Right. Um, so. Right now, the way the law is, I mean, prosecutorial immunity is a doc- doctrine that says that any misconduct a prosecutor does, no matter how egregious, if it happens after there's already been an arrest, then they have immunity, meaning you can't sue them for it. So imagine if a prosecutor, you know, uh, coerces a witness or mm-hmm. uh, doesn't correct perjured testimony or engages in some other form of misconduct, withholding evidence of innocence or making inflammatory remarks. And the end result is that you're wrongfully convicted and years later you're proven innocent. Right. You would think normatively, instinctively, well, I should be able right. to sue a prosecutor only under this doctrine. You can't. So right. I advocate for removing immunity. I think that you, you should be able to sue them. And uh, uh, certainly, I mean, you know, the, the Commission on Prosecutor Conduct, I, I believe in that as part of a package, a part of a raft of remedies to designed to deter and uh, detect and, and uh, you know, ultimately punish wrong, uh, prosecutorial misconduct. So the commission, you know, independent uh, commission that would have investigatory power, subpoena power, that would be an expert on the topic. That's part of it. But I think removing immunity is another step. And I think that uh, crim- I think that clear-cut intentional prosecutorial misconduct should be criminalized, particularly when it results in a wrongful conviction. I mean, because that means yeah. that prosecutors basically use the legal system to, in effect, kidnap somebody. I mean, it's right. a serious um, thing. Right. And then why, why not the fact that they put you in a room, interrogate you so intensely, traumatically, why, why isn't that, why aren't you able to sue against that? Or are you as, as? Well, you can. No, no, you can. And you, I, you can. And I did. But what okay. ends up happening, I mean, look, it, it is an important tool to try to hold accountable and to give some financial compensation, which while nothing can ever undo the harm and the lost time, et cetera, sure. is nonetheless an important tool in trying to rebuild your life. But I do want to add that despite that, that it's never the actual law enforcement officers that that pay. It, it's the municipality that they right. work for. Right. Not even, and I, you know, I would like to see that change. I think they should have to pay, you know, some, you know, some percentage. I mean, you know, forfeit, you know, a significant portion of your 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 pension. You have some other assets. I mean, the same way, if a private citizen commits a murder, it's not simply that they face criminal charges, but they you know, they are exposed to a wrongful death suit. I mean, it right. doesn't happen a lot, but it could happen, I sure. think. But, you know, this there's the potential double, you know, you, but I, th- I think that you should have that also when it comes to uh, law enforcement. And again, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not against 
law-abiding, upright law enforcement that's going to respect all state and federal constitutional rights, which means gathering evidence in a lawful way, you know, not not coercing anybody, not conducting a rigged lineup or using an informant that's lying, not test the lying yourself, which is a sarcastic term for an officer coming to court, taking an oath and, and lying, mm-hmm. you know, and not looking the other way. But if you do your job in, in, in a legal and ethical way, like I said, then I have, you know, no, no issues with law enforcement, you know, but yeah. it's not, it's not a few bad apples. <laughs> I'll say that. You know, they like to use that rhetoric, and I think it's damaging. It's not helpful. It's damaging because it tells the citizenry that law enforcement is not willing to admit that it has a problem, that there are plenty of bad people that wear the uniform, just like there's plenty of good. You know, it says that we want to maintain the fiction. But, you know, I always call on the honest cops and honest prosecutors to, you know, blow the whistle and force the dirty ones out of your profession. Right. I feel the same way about lawyers. You know, there's really, right. really, really great lawyers, and then there's some that should be in the profession. I mean, it's, it's exactly uh, right. I've worked with some of the best, and I've I've seen some of the not so good. So I, right. you know, exactly. I, I uh, yeah, of course, there's it's going to happen. But you know, let's let's talk about you know your transformation through this process, right? So you've come sure. out, you've you've really done an amazing job. And well, let me explain how I came out for just a second, and then I'll talk yeah. about what happened when I came out. Let me say how. how well, I was going to say I I want to ask you about your like ideal life versus reality there's something you talked about in one of your things like 100 yeah 100 percent. can i just let me just like take two yeah. minutes to just explain really quickly Absolutely. in a non-legalistic way how is proven innocent and then all those questions we, we 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 take and flow from there okay let's do it let's do it all right so long story short i did lose uh seven appeals along the way and I did get turned down for parole because I maintained my innocence rather than express remorse and take responsibility. Ultimately, I was exonerated because uh, further DNA testing through the DNA data bank. They took the crime scene DNA, which didn't match me, entered it into the database that matched the actual perpetrator whose DNA was there because left free while I was doing time for his crime. He killed a second victim oh, uh, three and a half years later, who was a school teacher and had two children. And confronted wow. with that evidence, he admitted he was the person who committed the crime. So my charges, my conviction was overturned um, September 20th, 2006. I went back to court November 2nd, 2006. All the charges were dismissed on actual innocence grounds. And he was subsequently arrested and convicted. Wow. 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 So so that comes through. Mm-hmm. Stood on your stood on your grounds of innocence, which is right. just incredible after all that. Mm-hmm. And then, like I said, I was I was reading through some of your your work and some of your your uh, website and stuff, and just talking about the ideal life versus reality. Like that was so fascinating to me. So the ideal life, which I dreamed about while I was in prison, right, thinking right. what it would be like if and when I regained my freedom. I mean, I figured that I would live in a neighborhood where I wanted to live at, you know, in the type of dwelling that I wanted to live at. I thought I would come home and get a job at a salary level and position the same point where I would have been had my life not been disrupted. You know, I, I thought it went without saying that, you know, I would have plenty of people to socialize with and, you know, dream about traveling here or, you know, mm-hmm. go to the movies or go to this amusement park or travel here or there, always kind of like assuming that there would be plenty of people to socialize with. Right. So, and I didn't for one second think about any psychological after effects. So that was the mm. idea. 
The reality is that, you know, I, I had a boatload of psychological after effects, you know, the PTSD, there was a stigma having been in prison uh, wrongfully, yes, but there nonetheless for 16 years. So how much of that rubbed right. off on you? Was it safe to be alone someplace with you? So definitely a challenge when it comes to personal, came to personal relationships. Uh, I was always passed over for gainful employment. You know, I did get a job as a weekly columnist, but they wanted one article a week. I was making money doing speaking engagements, but that's only when they book you. So that's really not a consistent uh, form of income. So I lacked stability of housing. I bounced from place to place at one point, coming a couple of weeks mm. with a homeless shelter. Uh, world was different. I never, I had no idea of, you know, the difference in technology, GPS, right. cell phone, internet was different. Culture was different. Neighborhoods right. different in, in not just in peak skill, but in neighboring cities that I used to go to. So cumulatively, I felt like it was a different world. And it was awkward when I would meet up with my uh, extended family who would, most cases had never come to see me, and the few time, few that did uh, very uh, sporadically, many many years in between visits. So that was always uh, that was always awkward. I feel like I faced some particular challenges because the time span from age seventeen to thirty-two. So yeah. I had never, I didn't, I had got a license, but I had never had a license. I never lived alone. I never went shopping. I never had wow. a real check or balance a budget. So all those things made for a really uh, challenging time. Yeah. But at the same time, while I was facing those difficulties, I did speak for like two and a half hours off the cuff at a press conference when I was released. Everything I ever wanted to say that I could not get anyone to hear me say kind of came out. So I like opening off. Hey, I could I could speak. I can right. I could be an advocate. I don't necessarily have to be a lawyer. As I mentioned, I was writing articles. I figured out how to keep the news coverage going. You know, so I was trading privacy for awareness, and then I was meeting with elected officials. So I did those things during my first five years of freedom, and I got a scholarship for Mercy College to finish the bachelor's degree because I was um, 10 classes short of the bachelor's at the time. The funding was cut for college education for prisoners. So I got the, got the bachelor's degree. I tried to go to law school. I, I did not get in. I got the master's degree because I figured that the extra credential would make me more effective advocate. And I thought mm -hmm. it would help me if I took a second shot at trying to get into law school. Uh, I, after five years, I did receive some financial compensation. I used some of it to start the Jeffrey Deskwood Foundation for Justice, which continued the same advocacy work as an individual, but that added the exonerative component to help people to um, reintegrate some. And so overall, since opening our doors in 2011, uh, we have been able to free 13 people. We helped pass wow. through laws and then another six as part of the National Coalition Group. It could happen to you. Uh, at some point, I got not satisfied with sitting in the front row of the courtroom. So I took another shot at getting into law school. I got in this time and uh, I, got, I graduated law school in 2019. So I, I've been practicing law since 2020. Uh, I had my first success as a lawyer I, I, as co-counsel overturned the wrongful conviction of Andre Brown in collaboration with uh, attorney Oscar Michelin, who's a foundation advisory board member. Uh, currently, we have 13 active cases and we're pushing policy changes in New York, California, and, and uh, Pennsylvania through that coalition group. And, and I collaborate with a lot of different entities. Uh, you mentioned Restorative Justice International, I'm advising Global Advisory Council, they're advising them on wrongful conviction, criminal justice issues. The 
the Right to Remain Silent Coalition, which is working on a bill that would give 16 and 17 year olds a non waivable right to counsel. Uh, they mm. have have to uh, have their rights explained to them by a lawyer before before they could uh, waive them, recognizing that kids. Oh, that's fantastic! That's that's fantastic. And younger don't understand their rights. So let them understand their rights. So they can. Yeah, really that's we were talking about. Why why can't you give them let them understand their rights before they have to make any decisions? That's uh, that's Correct. fantastic, so, Jeff. That's fantastic. So I've worked with them. There's a documentary short um, called Conviction, which is available on Amazon Prime, which tracks my advocacy work in life post exoneration. And in that I kind of rail against a lot of the things that I saw and experienced while I was in prison, just guilt, innocence aside, you know, issues mm-hmm. like over sentencing and how I would see people that were doing 15, 20, 30 years for drug possession, a, a certain amount, you know, maybe this much that made it a felony rather than this much a misdemeanor and how those wow. people were doing more time than people there for assault and, and, you know, kidnapping, rape, murder. And that was backwards. And, you know, mass incarceration, people that had mental health issues and people that were there as nonviolent offenders who were incarcerated, uh, the terrible medical care and uh, the slow bureaucratic and uncaring way, even compassionate release is administered, uh, which pertains to if someone is deemed, a prisoner is deemed to be terminally ill they can file the compassionate release. So the idea would be you could die with a little bit of dignity in a normal environment Mm -hmm. surrounded by friends and family. But that how often by the time those decisions were made, the person was dead already or they were released and then they die like a day or two uh, after that and how there really didn't seem to be much effort on the part of the uh, correctional officials to limit greatly reduced the inmate on inmate violence and there was a lot of verbal abuse by the guards mm-hmm. towards the prisoners and solitary confinement and you know removing college education from you know from the removing college education from the from the prisoners you know so i railed against all of those you know all those things in there i mean things i was either subjected to or that i that i witnessed that i saw that were very troubling and mm-hmm. you know i made the point, which I'll reiterate here, when someone is found guilty of, uh, of a crime, I mean, the punishment is supposed to be you lost your freedom for however right. long that turns out to be. It's not supposed to be that you're mistreated while you're in prison. And I feel strongly mm-hmm. that punishment should fit the crime. There should be a proportionality there. And I think that that's really not the case for the most part. I talk about parole reform and how people would Cola parole board that had bachelor's degrees, mm-hmm. education, vocational trades, sometimes living in honor block, functioning as role models, excellent disciplinary record. But yet the only thing that would matter when they went to the parole board was, well, what the crime was. And right. that just completely right. abandons any pretense at a belief right. in a second chance or rehabilitation, how that was right. counterproductive. Because if you take away hope, then why are you you know, why yeah. does rehabilitation have to happen despite the system? Why can't it be right. because of and through the facilitation yeah. of by the prison? So all those things I talked about in, you know, in that uh, documentary. Well, that'll be, yeah, definitely. Um, we put that out there when we put this out. But you know, I want to ask you a, a personal question. How, how did sure. you emotionally heal from this? Like, how, you know, is how did you or, or have you? Well, I, I, I guess the short answer is... Um, I've healed some, but I'm not completely healed. Uh, I don't, I don't know that it'll ever be completely healed. I would guess probably not. I did 
go to mental health experts like four times a week for six years. So that was part of it. You know, I, um, I'm not, I'm not an angry person. I want to enjoy my life as much as I can. I can't do that mm -hmm. if I'm angry or bitter. You know, mm -hmm. I feel like I lost so much already as is. Why would I want to, in effect, lose the rest of my life, which is what would happen wow. if I was to be angry or bitter. And the vehicle that allows me to actualize that is I take that energy I feel and I channel it into my advocacy work. So that vehicle plays a part. And another thing is I make sense of everything that happened to me in a kaleidoscopic type of way, you know, mm. in the sense that I, I, I'm doing the work I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed yeah. to be freeing people. I'm supposed to be working on policy stuff. I'm supposed to be trying to do something on these secondary non-innocence issues as well. And with an acceptance of that, have, have like a type of inner peace about myself. Yeah. If you wouldn't have, if you wouldn't have gone through all this, how would you know? What needed to be right. done, right? I mean, unfortunately, it's the yeah. per what I call the purpose and the pain. You know, how, how would you know, right? So it's it's uh, you're just definitely such an inspiration. What a bright light! But you know, where can people uh, find you? Where what's what's your good connection for people to find you? Sure. So yeah. So first and foremost, the website um, org. There is a web form there. People can email me there. I am on social media. I'm on Facebook and Instagram and and LinkedIn, the organization's there, the Jeffrey Daskin Foundation for Justice. I'm there also, um, so I do. I do use my social media primarily as uh, an information dispensing tool. So I do uh, accept friend requests and follows and whatever the terminology is, even from people yeah. that, I, that I don't necessarily know. I mean, it doesn't matter. I'm just trying to get the word out about the stuff, the work that uh, that I'm doing, so people can certainly follow us that way. I mean, I do. I, you know, uh, we do have 13 active cases, like I mentioned, but we have another five that are approved but are waiting. You know, we don't have the bandwidth to move those cases. So, you know, we're yeah. definitely looking to try to raise funds to increase our capacity to have other lawyers, investigators, paralegals, essential personnel to increase our uh, capacity. We do have a Patreon page. You know, imagine if, you know, people donated mm -hmm. $5, like 25,000 people. I mean, you know, yeah. imagine the good we could really uh, we could really do. You know, it's right. not really about me. I'm home. I'm free. I doubt seriously I'll ever find myself wrongfully convicted again. But it's really about the men and women that I metaphorically left behind. And so I'm driven to driven to do this work. And the ultimate dream would be to have a chapter of the foundation in each state and ultimately in each country. I really see this as a worldwide problem and, you know, countries where we don't hear about wrongful convictions because nobody nobody's being exonerated nobody's working on the cases well that's that's uh well i wish i put that out for, for you and that's why i'm hoping you know that just by getting out and talking about it and you know trying to get as much of the word out as possible you know that uh, i'm really grateful that you came and talked with me today and we'll get this out and get your word out and your great work your bright light and the dark place, Jeff, you know, it's, uh, it's one of those things that, um, like I said, there's I'm, my own personal story is a lot of purpose and pain. And when you can find it, there's definitely a peacefulness around it. So I, I give you a lot of a, a lot of credit and accolades for that. So thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you for having me on. And everybody just remember, you know, everybody's got a story and you never know what that story is. Maybe the person's just sitting next to you. So go out and spread some love and We'll talk again next time.
Thanks for listening to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. If you want to share your experience as a witness, please forward your information to info at julietcock.com. For more information on Juliet's 30-year career in the courtroom, visit us at julietcock.com. There you can find her books, The Equation of Persuasion, and 50 Ways to Get Your Way, available on Amazon. Remember to follow and subscribe to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation wherever you listen to podcasts. The content, opinions, and information shared by the hosts and guests on this podcast are not to be considered professional legal advice or therapeutic counseling. If you need assistance, consult with a licensed attorney or therapist if you are appearing as a witness, experiencing emotional trauma, or are involved in any sensitive legal matters. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Thank you.